Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Strange World, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have found myself ice skating with penguins on the streets of London, I am not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a smouldering rat desperately peeking through the windows of the greatest Christmas story of all time as we watch through 61 films and counting. Yes, 61. Strange World is out. You're going to still hear us saying 60 on some episodes that we recorded before that film came out. But this is the present day. This is 61 films and counting. And leading the charge for the biggest turkey in the shop is an animation academic who goes through life with a grateful prayer and a thankful heart. I am, of course, talking about the one and only Dr. Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, first up, Merry Christmas. Second up, how are you doing? I'm all right, yeah. Merry Christmas to yourself. Yes, I'm in that period where university is over, Christmas hasn't really fully started yet, so I've got a bit of time to chill out and uh, just watch some movies. What's on your Christmas movies list? I mean, I hope today's film is a, is a staple for you as a Christmas. In fact, I know it is, and I know you saw it just a couple of weeks ago with a live orchestra in London, which I was also meant to go to, and I was very sick. I was so sick that I couldn't make the Muppets with a live orchestra. It was deeply upsetting. Yeah, it was a really sad day. Every time Tiny Tim came on the screen, I teared up even more than usual because I was just thinking about Tiny Ben back home, coughing his guts up, not able to <laughs> attend. I don't have any Christmas movies on my watch list, Ben. My problem is I feel like I've seen all the Christmas movies. I'm not someone who watches movies more than once, even if it's like a tradition, so I'll end up seeing The Muppets every couple of years. Uh, I like to watch Arthur Christmas every now and then. That's a good animated Christmas movie. Uh, Tokyo Godfathers, another great animated Christmas movie. But I'd, this year it's mainly movies that I have been meaning to catch up on. So it's going to be X and Triple R are on my watch list tomorrow. Both letter-based movies and both movies that, are, from what I gather, have not seen them, not very Christmassy or wholesome <laughs> in the slightest. Can confirm X is incredible it is not a Christmas movie. It's not a movie to watch over Christmas with your parents. <laughs> watch it alone <laughs> in a dark room. Incredible stuff. But so we are once again, I have to say, listeners, not quite back on schedule with the Disney Renaissance. As we mentioned previously, we have our Aladdin episode in the bag and it is a beast. It's a long one. It's a big one. Big film, big episode, big edit for me. But before that, we wanted to do another festive special for you all as we head towards the holidays. Now, Last year we tackled Mickey's Christmas Carol and it was a blast to see so many of the legendary Disney characters doing their thing, including Pete. After our Goofy Movie episode, I think I can finally hold on to the knowledge of who Pete is. 
But if there's a definitive telling of Scrooge's story, one that does what Dickens, as hard as he tried, could never hope to fully pull off, there is another film that immediately springs to mind. The Muppet Christmas Carol, probably the greatest Christmas movie ever made, certainly the Muppetiest. Sam and I love this movie deeply, and for a very special reason, we thought we should give it the Disneyversity treatment. And that reason is not that it's the 30th anniversary this year, it's this. That while Sam can talk about animation, he can talk about the cap system, the multiplane camera for hours on end, and despite us both being Muppet enthusiasts, neither of us really has the expertise to break down the ins and outs of puppetry. But for this very special episode, we have a guest who can, and he is one of the very best in the business on screen. You'll have seen his work in Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Prometheus, I can't believe I'm saying this, BB-8 in the Star Wars sequels, absolutely amazing. Plus, he's worked on The Hoobs, Moppetop Shop, that BBC2 ident with the number 2 that thinks it's a dog, as well as Muppet Treasure Island and Muppets Most Wanted. Please give a huge Disneyversity welcome to Brian Herring. Brian. Hello, how are you? Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. That's a very big build-up. Thank you very much. Honestly, I'm so thrilled to have you here. I've heard of you in Legend for uh, a couple of years now as the puppeteer behind BB-8. I love those Star Wars sequels so, so deeply, let me tell you. In fact, so many great Christmas memories with those films as well, because we had a few years in a row of a big Christmas Star War, and that was one of the best presents you could ever hope to receive. <laughs> yeah, that was, was quite a period, wasn't it? It was fun. That was fun, yeah. <laughs> um, I will just very quickly say, I'm the, I'm the puppeteer directly behind BB-8. There are, there are a little Literally. team of us that do it. Yeah, I'm, I'm the guy in the green suit behind it, and I... I'm involved with, with many aspects of his performance, but there are a team of us that, that do it. I'm not the only chap that does that. There's a little group of us. I always like to give a shout out to them. But if you look at pictures on set of BB-8, of you, you see the ball in the desert, and behind the ball is a guy in a green, like green screen suit. That is Brian. That, that is would you. be me. Yes, that would be me running around like a fool, only to be heartlessly wiped out later. <laughs> How do you get to be that? guy? Guy. Oh, um, well, I'll nutshell this really. I started as an actor in the late 80s and through various bizarre sets of circumstances, I wound up at an audition for, a, uh, for the original version of Spitting Image or the back end of the original run of Spitting Image and they were looking for assistant puppeteers and I got given a job. I went along to this audition and they said, have you done any puppets before? And I said I had worked on a tour of Little Shop of Horrors. This wasn't an... In- I'd, I'd never done, never picked up a puppet in my life. This wasn't a complete lie because it it was on tour and I worked at a local theatre mm. and it came through and I helped them move the scenery. So I had technically worked in a tour at Little Shop of Horrors. And so they said, oh, well, it's very different. You have to, um, you know, you, you work above your head. You've got to watch this monitor. Uh, you read that script and you'll listen to the, the, the pre-recorded voice and you have to lip sync along to that. So I gave that a go. And they trained me up. They took me on as an assistant. So I was there for uh, the last four series of Spitting Image, which were, I think, 92 to 94. And I was there doing arms and eyes and sort of corgis, Queen's corgis and people <laughs> in the background. And I was given the Camilla Parker Bowls. I did Camilla Parker Bowls. Um, and that was sort of towards the end of that run. And I did a few other people in the cabinet and things like that, but nothing ever really, really chunky characters. And that kind of wrapped up. And whilst I was doing that job various other things were coming along the people that I was working for at Spitting Image who were training me were some of the best puppeteers in the country so they were getting their own jobs and they were taking me as their assistant and then I started auditioning for things and while that was going on 
I wound up being involved in some workshops for for the Jim Henson Company. They were looking for new performers. That turned out to be because Muppets Treasure Island was coming in. And so they were training up new people because whenever the Muppets come to London, they employ the world and his brother to be... Because there's a (laughs) core group of Muppet performers who do all main characters. And then all the others are the the frogs and the chickens and the the whatevers that are all running around and populating the world. So they get the locals in to come and do those. So there were lots of us on that job. And I was just... uh, It's fundamentally like being an extra, really, because you're populating, you know, large crowd scenes. Um, And from there, I worked for Henson's, I think... Uh, I did everything they did on television for about 10 years in the UK. And that included, say, Mop Top Shop and the Hoobs and Construction Site and various other things. And just through that, I was working for the BBC as well and some stuff on ITV and things like that. And I wound up working for a gentleman called Neil Scanlon. And Neil had won his Oscar for Babe. That was, again, something that came through the Jim Henson Creature Shop. But Neil personally yeah. was uh, awarded an Oscar for his work on that. And kind of, I just worked with him a few times, one of which was Prometheus. And then um, I wound up on the phone with him one day, as this business often does, as a sort of a dip in employment. And mm. I, I'd rung him for somebody's phone number and we were just sort of chatting away. And uh, I was bemoaning the state of the industry. And I kind of wrapped it up by saying, and now I've got to find out. Because we knew Star Wars was coming. Yes, yes. Star Wars always shoots in London, always shoots in the yeah, UK. Because I didn't get to, I almost got to work on The Phantom Menace a thousand years ago to be the assistant for a gentleman, a great puppeteer who passed away, sadly, quite recently called Phil Eason. And Phil uh, was Yaddle in The Phantom no. Menace. He, the, he did the Yaddle puppet. If you're not deep on your Star Wars lore, if you've fallen in love with... Baby Yoda, prepare to fall in love-ish with Lady love-ish, Yoda. Love-ish, yeah, Lady, Lady Yoda, yeah, yeah. She's slightly scary looking, I will be honest. Yeah. If you're wondering why you just heard two men go, ooh, to the mention of the name Yaddle. <laughs> but she, I mean, she was fairly much stricken from the record in the film, but there was, um, so obviously there was the, the Yoda puppet, which a whole bunch of guys did, and Frank Oz came and performed again. And Yaddle, and, and Phil was trying to get me in as his other arm, but that never played out, so... There were several ambitions I had going into working in puppets. One was to write a show that I uh, had my own character on. I did that quite early on. I did a, um, I did a show with Dominic Wood from Dick and Dom you know, right. very early on in his career called The Animal Magic Show. And I was the rabbit in that. I was this kind of mouthy Essex rabbit. I can't think how I got that part. And um, <laughs> so I, I wrote a lot of those episodes as well. So I got that one and I wanted to work with the Muppets. And so I did Treasure Island quite early. So that was a tick as well. And the other thing was I would like to do a Star Wars film. But by that point, I think the I think the prequels, are, they were happening anyway, but I didn't get to work on that. I didn't get to work on that. So I just sort of wrote that off. So I was talking to Neil on the phone and I said, I know Star Wars is coming back. We just have to, I just have to find out who's got the job and kick his door in. And Neil's response was, please don't do that. I like the door where it is. <laughs> and he said, don't worry, I'll find you something. And he employed me as puppeteer consultant for episode seven. I was there for 16 months, I think, on that job. And um, I was there to work with the creature designers on how, on what kind of positions you just can't put human beings in without breaking them and, and helping to sort of work out how they would see, how they would breathe. Um, I liaise with set departments and, and art departments or as to where we could hide people, where they would need to cut holes, how we could kind of secrete people around the set, whether we'd need to, you know, wipe them out or have them wear green later and remove them and that kind of thing. So that was quite an amazing job, really. And then I just carried on 
with the movies on a sort of varying basis until we got to the end of episode nine, really. It was a very crazy time, but yeah. And while I was there as the consultant, we started to see designs for this little round thing arrive. And I mm. did some very early tests with a gentleman called Josh Lee. Josh is BB-8's dad, really, because the, the design <laughs> came out of ILM. Uh, Christian Altsman did, did a, a lot of the early design work, and then Jake Lund Davis kind of finished it off and took it home with Martin Rizard and a few other people. And so... I did some very early tests with a BB-8, a little polystyrene ball when I could move the head around and I did it in black against black and we just showed JJ some little character studies. And yeah. from that point, he got green lit it to be done as a practical effect because he always wanted there to be something on set. Then Josh and Matt Denton and a few other guys, they took that then and created all those wonderful puppets. And then Dave Chapman came on board and that was how I wound up in a green suit in the desert running around like a fool with Harrison Ford you know so how did this happen <laughs> I mean as you said that was the dream that was yeah, the completely. dream for that whole trilogy and, and working with JJ and with Ryan Johnson mm-hmm. as well that's unbelievable if I didn't love the Muppet Christmas Carol so much I would rope you into talking about Star Wars for an hour and a half but I'm not right. going to do that to you <laughs> but just to touch on so you said your way into the business obviously was through the Jim Henson team and the albeit briefly you didn't work on Muppet Christmas Carol but you did work on Muppet Treasure Island you said as well in terms of being basically an extra in these scenes Mm -hmm. I don't know about you Sam but for me so many of my favorite Muppet moments are the chickens and the cabbages that are singing along like those are some of the best bits right especially in Muppet Treasure Island so that is I guess we'll maybe get into it but I was much more of a Treasure Island kid than a Christmas Carol kid Muppet Treasure Island is probably the live action movie that I watched most as a child because for me it was all just Disney movies, Pixar movies on repeat on VHS. Apart from Muppet Treasure Island, that was the one like live action video that I had that I just watched over and over. So I have a very kind of photographic memory of all of just the background freaks from that movie. Right. <laughs> so I really wanted to ask you, who, can you remember who or what specifically you did? Um, I really, you know what, it's, it's terrible. It's one of the first things I was supposed, I was supposed to be shot that in about 94. And it was all a bit of a blur because it was, it was the first big film I worked on. And I know I was on the ship, and the ship moved. The ship was on a big gimbal. So I did a few bits and pieces on the ship, and I did some stuff when they find the treasure room, where they're all dancing, and there's all slow motion and that kind of thing. Great scene. And I remember rehearsing, but don't remember if I filmed or not, when Kermit and Miss Piggy are hanging upside down singing. That was lots of kind of marionette stuff, so that was done with wires, where they, where they hang upside down, you move the arms with various... But again, I know I rehearsed that, but you, these things sort of alter and change as you go along. And so there are, it's funny, I, did, I said at the time, there are people who worked on those movies all the way through who would probably be infinitely better guests to talk about than I am, you know. But it's um, it was a crazy time to do these things because they were huge productions. And um, walking into Shepherd and Studios and seeing the Hispaniola there, the sheer size of it it was it was ridiculous the only time I kind of I had a real flashback to that 2019 I went and did some work on the the Robert Downey Jr. Doolittle movie mm. and they had a full-size ship like that right and I remember sort of thinking oh okay we're back on one of these again you know that was sort of moved <laughs> around so that was yeah it took me right back one of the most fun things about going onto those kinds of sets is the the sheer attention to detail of the sets and the props and the costumes uh, there's nothing funnier than a puppet in a period costume. 
I don't know why it is. You just you you know you put a frog in a top hat. Hilarious. And oh, it's you're um, telling me. <laughs> you saying this, Brian? This has come up as a regular obsession of Sam's, which is like right. frogs in oldie timey outfits. Which also there you go. we're talking about Muppet Christmas Carol this week. Yeah, and, and Muppet Treasure Island as well. Perfect. Completely. But you you know you get to look at these costumes and the stitching is beautiful and they don't scrimp on the costumes and it's also it's not made out of you know you go to buy something from mother care these costumes are all bespoke and they're all special lightweight materials and the people who work in the costume department this is beautiful stuff and it all moves properly it moves as costumes would because the odd thing is because obviously puppets don't tend to have shoulders so yeah. you have to kind of compensate right. within the costume for that and you know if you want their arms to go above their heads the costumes have to allow for that as well because if you were to put sometimes when you, you do stuff you will just put a puppet into a sweatshirt if you're making a video at home or something like as you all do you put a puppet into say like a, a very small child's hoodie and it looks okay until you start moving it around and, and it, because the, the fabric doesn't move properly and it really restricts it but when you get onto some of these jobs say with the Muppets they make such beautiful clothing and it's all lightweight as well so it, you can you can hold these puppets above your head I don't know if your listeners know that the really the way that they work with the Muppets and most and Jim Henson developed this because up until he started doing these sorts of things, if you would see puppets on television, they'd be in a booth. But Jim Henson realised that they had a booth and it was the TV screen. There was a square. So if you brought the camera up above the performers and they put their arms in the air and you put the bottom of the frame just above their heads, they could all just put their arms, do you see their arms from what is effectively the elbow upwards and they would play the scenes above their heads and to see what they're doing they have a camera feed on the floor so they can see how wide the frame is and where what they're looking and catch their eye lines and that's fundamentally how nearly everything that the, the, the Muppets have done. Sesame Street is different because they have people walking around and I don't know if I mean the my personal rule of thumb is when you're working these things out for as a consultant is if you've got more puppets than people you put the people on boxes and if you've right. got more people than puppets you put the puppeteers on trolleys on the floor and they pull themselves along with their ankles on little things that you kind of see mechanics going underneath cars you know in that sort of thing <laughs> just wheeling so, along the floor yeah. at a very low level exactly yeah so if you I mean, there's lots of making of stuff that you, you, you see you can see these things now um, but if you realise that actually the guests on the Muppet show are all sort of standing on runs of boxes and the puppeteers are standing on the floor. And especially when people like John Cleese are on The Muppet Show, you look at it and it, did, it never occurs to you whilst watching it. And that was the, the genius of it because the characterizations are so well and everybody was playing it absolutely believing in the characters they were talking to. But if you stop to think about how long Kermit the Frog's legs must be, <laughs> then you're in trouble. And that's where you suddenly go, oh, hang on a minute. How come he's all the way up there and... Yeah, we've seen his legs because we've seen him riding that bicycle. Oh, of course, which I of would course. ask you about, but I think like, it would probably take an hour to explain how they did that because that is pure magic. That is there amazing. were two different versions of that. Yeah, I mean the ones from uh, Great Muppet Caper that was all done on gantries from above. That was a mm. marionette. That was a big marionette rig because that's um, where he's uh, flipping upside down and doing all sorts of tricks. And yeah, yeah, yeah. There's lots of green screen work on there as well. So, uh, the one I think in the Muppet movie, I believe, was mechanized. And I think the bike was stabilised. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but it's... One, I mean, I, I still think one of the greatest opening shots of anything ever is uh, a frog on a log playing the banjo. For just, yeah. you know, the official opening to the Muppet movie, not when they're all coming into the theatre. I just love that sequence. 
it's just I mean, again it's just Paul Williams just being brilliant um, we'll talk about him more later I'm sure I mean the, the Muppet movie and Muppet Christmas Carol both invoke tears for me with their yeah. music Rainbow Connection they're the best two for me yeah so before we crack on with the film itself I'm going to ask you the questions that we ask all of our guests which is first up what Disney films did you grow up watching uh, The Rescuers was one of my favourites as a kid. Oh, we've done The Rescuers, had a great yes. time watching The Rescuers. Lovely stuff. And, okay, what other ones? Growing up watching, I remember, I remember seeing Bambi at the cinema, mm-hmm. and I remember going to see Lady the Tramp at the cinema, and Herbie, Condor Man was a big one for me. <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah. Come on, Sam, what's Condor Man? I've never heard of this. What's that now? You've never heard of Condor Man? No, you don't understand how little Ben has heard of any of these films. <laughs> well, Condor, I mean, for me, um, you know, never mind release the Snyder Cut, release Condor Man, that's my thing. I don't, has it made it to Disney Plus yet? It hasn't, has it? It's not on Disney Plus, no. no. it's uh, Michael Crawford as, you know, one of the first great superhero movies. It's, uh, it's, oh, we it's will a... get there many years down the line on the podcast we'll get a condom I say it's a belter I haven't seen it for years so I'm, it may not be <laughs> we'll get you back mate but um, so that that was another one I mean and I I have a very soft spot for the Tarzan movie I know mm. it's I, you know I know it was much later but I think that Tarzan was one of the first ones they'd done in a long time that I felt had any real danger in it the panther and, and that stuff and there, there were some real stakes in that film and the Emperor's New Groove of the newer ones. I, I really like that too. I just think it's insane. And I remember seeing The Black Cauldron in 85. I saw it in America. Really? Did it melt your brain and your eyeballs? It didn't, but I was in America for all of that furore. And I remember them that there being, you know, a certain amount of real pushback. People saying, you know, this is, this is wrong. We shouldn't be showing all this. Um, I do, again, remember some of the imagery from that. And I, I, I like that very much. Yeah, once you've oh, Robin seen... Hood. Robin Hood, sorry. Yes, Robin, <laughs> Robin Hood. I remember going to see Robin Hood and adoring it and having uh, Weetabix packets that you you cut the backs off the Weetabix packets. This is ageing me now really badly. They used to give away, tra- not trading cards, but stand-up cards of uh, the different characters and you can make little scenes. So yeah, Robin Hood was a big one and Robin Hood's been a favourite of mine for years as a, as a story. I'm going to say now that that is what influenced you to be a puppeteer. I know you didn't say that yourself, but in my head, it's playing with a Weetabix box with Robin Hood's cutouts on the back. It was, you know, it was a thing. I kind of grew up in the theatre. My mother was uh, working in the theatre when I was quite young. So there was a lot of that. And I was given sort of free reign to play like that. And so I would write little plays and do that kind of thing. And then until you could make those little sets. And then at seven years old, I saw Star Wars and was obsessed and had all the toys and did all that stuff. So that was kind of really what set me off to that. And it was weird to be some 40 odd years later, 35 years later, to be involved in it. You know, it was very strange. But um, no, so Robin Hood was a, yeah, was a, was a big, uh, I'm a big fan of that one. Amazing. Yeah, some classic picks there. All ones that we've done on the show so far, apart from Tarzan. Tarzan, which I've seen like once back in the day. This is the thing, Brian. I'm not allowed to watch any films that I haven't seen yet in the canon until we get to them on the podcast. So I can't wait to rewatch Tarzan a couple of months down the line. But for now, that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time we're taking a trip back to Victorian London for a series of seasonal hauntings in 1992's The Muppet Christmas Carol. 
Right then, this time, Sam, you are being spared the job of summing up the plot of Muppet Christmas Carol because it's the plot of A Christmas Carol, which we also covered in Mickey's Christmas Carol. I guess before we really get stuck into the film itself, the main thing I want to talk about is what's the history of the Muppets and Disney? Because this film is on Disney+, Plus. loads of the Muppet stuff is on Disney+, Plus. weirdly not all of it. I recently spent money acquiring Muppets from Space, and I think Muppets Take Manhattan is not on Disney+, Plus either. There's a weird, some of them are on, some of them are off, but generally these days the Muppets are a Disney property, and this was always a Disney film. So can you just tee up, how, when did the Muppets become part of the wider Disney brand? It's naughty, to be honest. So they weren't part of the wider Disney brand when this movie was made. They weren't owned by Disney when they made this film. So Jim Henson had started negotiating with Michael Eisner to sell the Muppets to Disney in 1989, so just around the time that Eisner was really hitting his stride as the CEO of Disney, Little Mermaid was coming out, etc. And Eisner had a history with Henson and with the Muppets because he was president of ABC in the mid-1970s when that TV network produced the two, like, proof-of-concept specials for the Muppets, which were called The Muppets Valentine Show and The Muppet Show Sex and Violence. Oh, okay, very different vibe. <laughs> yeah, which isn't quite as sexy or as violent as it might sound, but it did dealt with the topics of sex and violence. That was when they were trying to pitch the Muppets as more of an adult thing before they ended up falling in that quite lucrative middle ground of let's do this for kids and adults at the same time. So Eisner, in a roundabout way, kind of gave Henson his start on TV with those specials, although, you know, he he didn't play that. He didn't have that closer hand on the project. But, yeah, during this period, Henson was negotiating to sell them up its outright, to sell the whole Henson company outright to Eisner and Disney. And he was also working on what would become his final two projects for Disney. Uh, Muppet Vision 3D, the theme park attraction, which you recently had the pleasure of experiencing, Ben? I did, yeah. I was, uh, as I said, in Florida at Walt Disney World on my honeymoon, went and watched Muppet Vision 3D and had a wonderful, wonderful time. There is an animatronic Statler and Waldorf who sits in the theatre with you and they're watching the show with you and there's bits where kind of a spotlight's on them. You're supposed to look at the Statler and Waldorf animatronics, but also when the spotlight's not on them and the show is just playing, they are still reacting the whole time to the Muppet Vision 3D show. It's amazing. It was so good. So that was like one of the last Muppet projects Henson worked on. The other was The Muppets at Walt Disney World, which was a TV special where the Muppets visited Walt Disney World and had a fun adventure while also advertising Walt Disney World. And Kermit interacts with animated Mickey in his, like, CEO outfit. There's this weird, like, business, cool 90s businessman outfit that uh, Mickey would wear around that time in his appearances on the Disney TV show. So if you want to see Kermit and businessman Mickey meet up, that's a great place to go for that. But then before the deal could go through, Henson died really suddenly in 1990 from a bacterial infection. And they weren't able to complete that deal and it sort of petered out without him. Then not long after Henson's death, his son Brian Henson was pitching around ideas for like the next big Muppet project. And he settled on Christmas Carol, which was a suggestion from Brian Henson's agent, and sold it to ABC as a TV special. But then Disney stepped in and offered to produce it as a feature film. So even though the deal fell through, this led to like a production and distribution deal which would follow on to another handful of Muppet projects across the 1990s, Treasure Island being one of them. 
Okay, so we have another case of like this incredible pioneering influential person who brings the Muppets and then suddenly passes away. And then it's like, what do we do with this going forward? And what we end up with is The Muppet Christmas Carol, which is a wonderful, wonderful thing. As you say, directed by Brian Henson, by Jim Henson's uh, son. Okay, is there anything else that we need to know before getting into the movie itself? Well, I mean, only the fact that eventually, as I guess we now know, Eisner did manage to purchase the Muppets outright away from the Jim Henson family, the Jim Henson company. So it's like the Henson company is still an independent organisation that do work in lots of different places, but Disney own the Muppet characters, and that's why now all the Muppet stuff is on Disney+, Plus or most of it, and all the new Muppet projects uh, put out by Disney, and there's been varying degrees of, of uh, commercial and artistic success along the road. Well, they've enjoyed a couple of, like, renaissances over the last ten years, like mini little revivals with the Jason Siegel movie, and we recently had a great time, Ben, watching The Muppets Haunted Mansion, several weeks after Halloween. Several weeks after Halloween, just watched the Eddie Murphy Haunted Mansion movie back-to-back with Muppet Haunted Mansion on a Thursday, because you live in London now, and we can just do that in the middle of the week. It's great. What a time. Well, I think we're all teed up. It's Christmas, it's been snowing, I think it's time to fully get stuck in with the Muppet Christmas Carol. I cannot wait. If I stop spontaneously crying in the middle of this podcast, it's because this is the most wholesome movie ever made, and it always, always has me breaking down in tears. Well, normally on this podcast we end up talking about storybooks. Lots of these Disney films begin with classic books opening up and being drawn into the story and while this is based on classic literature the muppet christmas carol has actually quite a different way into the christmas carol story and it's one of my favorite things about this film is that being a muppet movie muppet movies tend to be quite self-referential they talk to the audience directly they often break the fourth wall we have gonzo welcoming the audience as dickens himself we also have rizzo just as rizzo (laughs) in a victorian outfit it's a delight those guys bring us into the film and are telling us the story of a christmas carol as it's happening i love these guys gonzo is he the obvious choice to lead this story feels like a slightly outsider choice for me and I think that's why he did it. That's why they gave it to him, because he's so off the wall and is the last person you would expect to be telling you this piece of, you know, classic British literature that, you know, that's the fellow. I mean, it is, so it would make all the sense in the world if you're the Muppets to have the most off the wall character tell you the story in the most off the wall way. And I just love the fact that, you know, I am here to tell the story and Rizzo is here for the food. You know, I just think it's a, it's a great, great opening shot. And it, uh, Christmas Carol sets its stall out really fast as to the kind of film you're having. I mean, with, with, from his opening line, yeah, yeah, the Marleys were dead. Woo, scary. You know, and it's, they kind of bring you in like that. And it's, uh, it's, it's clearly not taking itself very seriously from the beginning. And yeah. so he's great, yeah. And Dave Goals as Gonzo was and still is fabulous, you know, as that as that character. Sam, I like to think on this podcast, you're here to tell the story of Disney, and I'm here for the food. If that's our dynamic on <laughs> Disneyversity, that's the way round that goes. I've always identified as a Gonzo. I think if I'm a Muppet, I am Gonzo. I think <laughs> I don't know if I would say he's my favourite Muppet. Like Kermit is is obviously just a perfect character. Miss Piggy is 
one of the greatest comedy creations of all time, but Gonzo is the one that kind of speaks to me directly. I don't know if I'm going to elaborate on that. <laughs> he's just... He is very rich as a character. Like, he's evolved a lot over the years mm-hmm. as a character yep. as well. It's a similar reason why, actually, I, I mentioned this on um, our Roger Rabbit podcast. That's why I love Daffy Duck as well, because he started off as a very different character to the character that he became. But you can see every, like, iteration of that. It didn't just happen overnight like it evolved slowly over a number of works and the same thing happened with gonzo mm-hmm. and dave goals talks about how it mirrors his career and his dynamic within the muppeteering group quite a lot so if you go back and watch the original muppet show gonzo is really quite off to begin with in the first season he's very like meek and childish and almost quite pathetic and goals has said that's because that's how he felt as like the newcomer to the group he was one of like the junior members of the core team of Muppeteers and then as he settles into the role you get this big wild crazy gonzo and then around the time of Christmas Carol and afterwards he was like settling down he was married he was having kids and gonzo becomes this much more not quite fatherly but a little bit more sensible a little bit more put together um, in fact, it's weird because we we're talking about Gonzo on our last episode, which was about Goofy, <laughs> with with Griffin Newman. He brought up that comparison between 90s Goofy and 90s Gonzo yeah. and, and sand on the edges off a bit. But yeah, it's, it's, I think he said Gonzo's more like a kind of wacky, slightly eccentric uncle in his latter years. But it, it all works. It's all good. It's all Gonzo. It feels organic, this evolution. I mean, we've kind of teed it up already, but do, do we all have a favourite Muppet? Brian, do you have a favourite Muppet of the core group? Yeah, I used to like Fozzie, because I used to tell lots of jokes, bad jokes as a kid. still do. <laughs> uh, Fozzie, I liked, I liked Animal, because he was just insane. Yeah. And I've always had a soft spot for Beaker, actually. Yeah. Yes, I love Beaker. Yeah, so Beaker, I like Paul put upon Beaker. They're constantly blowing him up. Just the pure comedy of his design, the way his face yeah. looks, the way he yeah, kind yeah. of just keeps getting slimmer towards the top into that little tuft of hair and the, and the flapping open mouth is just genius. One of the funniest things I ever saw the Muppets do, and I'll stand by this joke to this day, is Beaker singing Feelings with the band. <laughs> which is just, if you've never seen it, just Google Beaker Sings Feelings, and it'll just make you happy. That's all there is to it. (laughs) Yeah, Beaker Singing Anything is top-notch. There's a deleted Beaker song from this movie, which is a shame. Yeah, it's on the soundtrack album. If you go on Spotify, there's a deleted Bunsen and Beaker song. Oh, yes, yes, there is. Yes, yes, it's when they're collecting for charity. Yes, yes. While we've all been clamouring for Love Is Gone, which we were just saying off-mic, has actually been in releases of this film. They make a, made a big deal this year of bringing back When Love Is Gone into the film. That's a song with uh, Michael Caine. That's a very like sad song that was cut out of the film, but it has appeared in various incarnations. Really, we should be clamouring for the Beaker song to come back in. That's the real <laughs> fan campaign here. Yeah. Well, they never filmed it, actually, but they did film a song with Ben, one of your favourite Muppets, Sam the Eagle. He has a song as well on the soundtrack Mm -hmm. that they did shoot and that didn't make it into the film because they thought that these two songs were both like quite funny and quite good tunes, but they didn't really move the plot forwards Mm. during these times where you really need to have 
the plot moving forward. Is is Sam the Eagle your favourite Muppet, Ben? He's one of them, especially actually after re-watching recently Muppet Treasure Island. He absolutely cracked me up in that film. In the roll call sequence on the boat. The best. It's just the deadpan comedic potential of that monobrow. The Sam the Eagle monobrow is a magical, magical thing. Uh, so yeah, he really shot up in my estimations. I did a big rewatch of all the Muppet films recently, and uh, yeah, he was always under the radar for me. And now he's one of my favourite Muppets, up there with Beaker and Kermit. I know Kermit's like a boring choice, but it it, it is Kermit. Kermit just speaks to me. And he sings to me and those songs make me cry and, you know, here we are now. But I think before we get into talking about the casting of this movie and which Muppets get to play which characters, I just briefly want to talk about, again, the introduction of the film, not just in terms of Gonzo and Rizzo introducing us to Dickens and to the story but to the introduction to the world of this movie, because the sets are incredible. I love those sweeping crane shots heading into Victorian London, into the streets, immediately just putting us in this world, as the other Muppet movies do, of a place where it's mostly Muppets, but there are human people too, and they all interact and live in this world together, and it's just completely accepted. You understand the world of this film immediately and i think the the filmmaking does an incredible job to make that happen well that, that opening shot that opening model shot is just amazing and it's so the detail is beautiful as well and there were a lot of uh, forced perspective sets on that on that job as well so they so, you know they would get the buildings would get smaller apparently somewhere i think it's in the last shot you can see that they are false perspective when the camera comes away. Uh, but they said the shot was so nice, it was the end of the movie, they didn't think anybody would care, and nobody <laughs> does. And the music as well, it sets its stall out with the narrators, but as you just said, it's so lush to look at. It looks like a period drama with singing turkeys, you know, and, 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 and ice skating penguins and all that stuff. And it, one of the wonderful things about the Muppets is, even though they're insane as an idea they still almost grounded them in the real world. Yeah, it's one of my favourite things about the film as well. Like, I love, in any movie, and now struggling to think of other examples, but I love hyper-real, slightly miniaturised, microcosmic movie sets where it's almost like a theme park that you could walk around in. I mean, it is. that's why I like Disneyland as well. Like, I love this idea of taking either a real place or just an idea of a real place and making it flesh it, it's actually that's one of the things that animation does brilliantly as well in general like putting you inside an imagined ideal of a real place like this particular version of victorian london never existed never looked like this but it's the version that we think of when we close our eyes and picture the dickens story paddington did it i think did a version of london that doesn't exist and has never existed so did harry potter to an extent and uh, one that immediately sprang to mind was little shop of horrors because oh, and of course, the, of course, the DNA there just jumps straight from one to the other as Frank, you know, t- turned that stage show into a, an actual film, uh, and so many stage shows that have been, you know, turned into films that have never really left the stage. But, but I think what Frank did with that was was stylized to such an extent, and it's a beautiful camera work. And it, but it was still there was still something quintessentially theatrical about it, but it was a very much a contained world, as you just said there. And very pivotal for this era of Disney we've been talking about because so much of this 90s period is Howard Ashman and Alan Menken who obviously wrote the songs for Little Shop of Horrors. So it's all connected. It all comes together. Okay, so should we get stuck into the casting here? Because it is incredible. As much as we have Gonzo kind of leading the film really as Dickens, 
that leaves the kind of big question of who is who is Kermit going to play? Who's Kermit going to play in this movie? Obviously, he cannot be Scrooge, and we're going to get to Scrooge, but Kermit could never be Scrooge. We need the most wholesome guy for him to play, and who could that be but Bob Cratchit? Then we have Miss Piggy as Emily Cratchit. We have Statler and Waldorf as Marley and Marley, which every time I see any other version of A Christmas Carol... I always forget there's only one Marley yeah. because in, <laughs> yeah. in my head there are two Marleys purely because of the Muppet Christmas Carol. We have Robin as Tiny Tim. Like the casting here of Muppets to characters in A Christmas Carol I think is just brilliantly done. I've heard this story on more than one occasion and I don't know how true it is but it rings true. It's because the film itself very early on is dedicated to Jim Henson and Richard Hunt who had both passed away prior to the making of that movie and they originally performed both Statler and Waldorf so to have them play the ghosts of Marley and Marley is kind of a natural piece of piece of casting. Oh, I never thought about that before yeah having them as ghosts. Yeah I, again I don't know how consciously that was done but it, knowing sort of some of the people involved in this that wouldn't surprise me in the slightest. I mean, they just work perfectly as well because they are some of the few just, like, unlikable Muppets. I mean, we'll lo- you love to hate them, but mm. most of the Muppets don't work terribly well when cast as, like... Like, you couldn't have Fozzy as Marley no. and... No. In Mickey's Christmas Carol, it's goofy, and it's just, it just doesn't work. He's not... It's not happening. So, yeah, those two guys are tailor-made to play the Marleys as they become. And there was a version of this where I think very early on, when it was going to be a little bit less sincere and a little bit more silly, all of the ghosts were going to be like classic Muppets. So I think Piggy was always going to be Christmas present. And I've heard that either Robin or Scooter was going to be Christmas past and Gonzo or Animal was going to be Christmas future. Which, I mean, as soon as you've got Animal as the ghost of Christmas future, what does that become like there's no way of taking chaos <laughs> gravestone gravestone it just doesn't work yeah i mean i think that what they ended up with it's fascinating to think of other combinations that it could have been but it feels like the ones that they settled on are just right even just down to sam the eagle being the schoolmaster i mm. love his little line his it's the american way <laughs> the tap on the shoulder it's the british, british way <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, one of the best gags in the film. It's great how, even though they do... People often say that this is actually one of the most faithful adaptations of the story because of how much of the prose they actually Mm. get in there. And so much of that is through the Dickens character. But it's amazing that these characters are able to behave as themselves. We're able to see who Miss Piggy is, even though like at least 50% of her dialogue is taken directly from Dickens. And that goes through all of these characters. So like with Miss Piggy, it's just little asides, like when she's cooking the goose and her son says like, oh, it sure smells lovely, mother. And she goes, it does, doesn't it? And does like a little, little Miss Piggy. Oh, little little pause in the mirror. I'm going to do a lot of terrible Muppet voices <laughs> over the course of this podcast, by the way. I think my, my favourite one like that is, is, is she's, I'm, I'm going to raise your salary. Well, I'm going to raise you right off the pavement. And then she just stops. <laughs> yeah. It's very lovely. Yeah, lovely. Perfect. That's what Rizzo's there to do as well. Mm. Like, loads of the best gags are, are Rizzo-based because he isn't playing a character, he's playing himself. We'll get a Rizzo the Rat as himself mm. credit at the start, which we haven't seen on this podcast since Squeaks the Caterpillar in The Fox and the Hound. And it paid off so well then. 
Yeah, we love a fictional character being credited as playing mm. themselves is just always a wonderful thing. For me, I honestly think the bit of casting that actually works the best, and it's it's completely obvious once you make Kermit Bob Cratchit, is to then cast Robin as Tiny Tim because there's something about Robin well basically just looking like kermit but absolutely minuscule and adorable mm. that just breaks your heart anyway just looking at him i've just i would die for robin <laughs> in any sense but when you cast him as tiny tim and have to feel the tragedy of tiny tim and when you have that sequence where bob and tiny tim are walking home singing tis the season to be happy and joyous <laughs> it fills you with joy and with warmth and then when tiny tim is dead and he's taken away and that's robin that is just absolutely devastating yeah i think that bit of casting in particular honestly for me is a big part of the emotional punch of this film but again that with all of these characters that's jerry nelson i mean jerry nelson was just a master when you think the same guy who plays robin was the same guy who plays floyd the guitarist in the band you know the, the the guy's voice range was incredible and he was a great actor they were all really, really amazing performers. And, and, you know, Jerry could do something very, very tiny like Robin or the voice of something, you know, great, big like the Ghost of Christmas Present. You know, so it's the same fella doing the voice. And you just wow. think, you know, this is incredible, absolutely incredible. And so, yeah, Robin's casting as, as, as Tiny Tim was absolutely inspired. There's a turkey called Martin in the opening uh, <laughs> credits, which the opening titles, which always makes me laugh. <laughs> Wait, so he is the name in the credits? Does he just pop up as a character in the credits? I, I'm um, in for this turkey. No, he just at one point he says there's a market stall uh, guy chatting away, and this turkey pops out of the out of the thing, and he goes, oh, go, "Down you get, Martin." <laughs> I also wanted to shout out some of my favourite characters who are all background freaks, like. For me, if I'm in my pantheon of Muppets, like you've got the top few guys, you've got your Kermit's Piggy and Gonzo, and then it's just like background freaks, <laughs> which is why I love this movie and Treasure Island in particular, because they're just full of them. These like grimy, grotty worlds that they depict, they're just a great place to bring out like um, the horrible toad thing at Fred's party. Fred, he's having this party. You know, a couple of humans, a couple of pigs, standard Muppets, and then there's just these two absolutely minging like toad guys. And I managed to get a name for one of them. He's from Fraggle Rock, apparently, and he's called Wanda McMooch. <laughs> but, but they don't mention the name. If I had a character called Wanda McMooch in every movie he popped up in, even if it was just a cameo, I'd turn to him and say, like, oh, Wanda McMooch, what do you think? Like, you'd have the line in there, wouldn't you? Yeah, crowbar it in. Yeah. Well, and there's Old Joe as well, which I really like, the spider. The spider, yeah, it's just oh, brilliant. It's very, very Absolute good. minger. You've got a vulture friend and a little a, a lady toad in a bonnet mm. who are bringing him things they've stolen from Scrooge. Every so often you see what I'm informed is called an ink spot who is like a little, tiny, that's a Fraggle Rock thing, like a little slimy blob guy. A lot of those, what was quite lovely about um, subsequently going on to work on shows like Moppetop Shop, which people of a certain age will remember, is that we would get sent all of those puppets and they would have parts either written for them or we would cast 
They would, I worked for a lady called Jocelyn Stevenson who co-wrote Fraggle Rock with Jerry Jewell and Jim Henson and she created Mopper Top Shop and so different customers would come in and they were all puppets that were featured in the background, your background freaks. So the ink spots were a little family called Worry Warts and they were always worried about something. They'd come in oh, worry, 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 worry and there was Dad, Mummy, Worry Wart and <laughs> Mum, Worry Wart and all the little Worry Warts. And so there were a lot of those characters that, that uh, appeared in Christmas Carol and Treasure Island and I got to puppeteer a lot of those over the four series of Moppetop Shop it was really really sweet I need to go back and watch a bit of that yeah the, the mice in the walls as well they oh, were there was yeah. a family of mice that lived in the attic in Moppetop not Jesus for us mice yeah exactly that is like one of the most legendary lines from this film one of the most genius bits of writing in this whole thing and that's saying a lot seeing as half of it is literally written by Dickens because there, there were two different scales of those puppets so there were little ones which were on rods and they, they, they had little rods on their arms and their heads would move on kind of little rockers using uh, wires from underneath and their mouths were on triggers. And then there were versions of them which were full-size puppets. You'd shoot them in a bigger set or, you know, a scaled-up set so you could go in close on them and they'd be different. But, yeah, they're very cute, those little mice. Amazing. Well, if we're talking about who steals the screen in this film, I know we're really here to talk about the Muppets and we love the Muppets deeply, but we have to talk about Michael Caine and how incredibly well he plays Scrooge here. A very serious Scrooge. A Scrooge who is not playing on the Muppet register, who is not winking to the audience. A Scrooge playing it entirely straight. Michael Caine really goes for it in this film. And that, again, if we're talking about what the emotional power of this film is, we're going to get to the songs down the line. We've talked about Robin as Tiny Tim, but Michael Caine as Scrooge is just amazing well he said when he got cast i read an interview where he said i'm going to play this movie like i'm working with the royal shakespeare company i will never wink i will never do anything muppety i'm going to play scrooge as if it's an utterly dramatic role and there are no puppets around me and he plays it straight down the line i mean it's, i think he's fantastic in this yeah i read brian henson saying like oh how would you come to cast Michael Caine, where'd that idea come from? And he said, like, oh, we'll consider a couple of comedians, like George Carlin, I think was the name mm. thrown around. That would have been interesting. But he said, like, we're settled on... Again, it was this moment where they're settled on making it a really sincere thing, where they recast all of the ghosts as original puppets. And it was like, what great British actor hasn't yet had a chance to give his Scrooge? Like, because that's obviously a, a, a... You know, a lot of great British actors have done that. Let's give it as someone who hasn't. Let's give it to... Michael Caine and he does and he acts the hell out of it and it's perfect it's spot on because I think you really believe him obviously for a lot of the film he has to play nasty Scrooge horrible Scrooge stealing heat away from Kermit and the rats working in his shop we see him wrangling with the ghosts and really giving as good as he gets but when he has to play heartbreak Scrooge when he's confronted with the lost loves of the past when he's confronted with the death of Tiny Tim, and the again, the heartbreak on his face just sells it so, so well. And the terror, I think, as well. We're going to get to the kind of visitings of the ghosts, but the Christmas future part of it, where he has to play the sheer terror of being shown, this is what is waiting for you. You feel that panic. It's interesting, because obviously this is telling this story in a very family-friendly way but it is an inherently quite unfamily-friendly story it has dead kids it has spectral visitings <laughs> it has hey you're headed for the grave yeah um yeah i think there must be a lot to see this for the first time as a kid even the muppet version 
Scrooge's introduction in this film is just fantastic because you don't see his face until the very end of that song. Yeah. And I mentioned earlier Paul Williams. I mean, Paul Williams wrote the songs for this and it's just fantastic because you've got songs in there like um, When Love Has Gone, which you're absolutely, you know, pull your heart out. And then you've got Scrooge's introduction, which is suitably scary and particularly grim, but also contains the lyric, Scrooge, he loves his money because he thinks it gives him power. The fruit pop up and sing, if he became a flavour, you could bet he would be sour, which is like <laughs> such a Muppets thing to do. Yeah. And it, but it also, so yeah, he'd be horrible. He'd be, yeah, you wouldn't yeah. want to eat that if it was a thing. And, it, and it's just, <laughs> it, he's such a great lyricist. He really knew how to write for the Muppets. In the grand tradition of Christmas diss songs, it's basically that and you're a mean one, Mr. Grinch. Exactly. But it's, it's great that there's two. I can't think of any more, but it's great that there's two. And as you say, Brian, as like the introduction to Scrooge, that kind of swoosh, that turn to camera mm. that he does at the end of that song, that flourish is just wonderful. It's like a perfect image. And he's, he's clearly loving every minute. You know, he's having so much, he's having as much fun as Alan Rickman did in Prince of Thieves. He never blinks, well, he never blinks anyway, we know that about Michael Caine, but he just, he never winks at the camera and he just is so good. He just doesn't let up on it. It's just brilliant. So I think in the tradition of A Christmas Carol, I think we should go through this by the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and then the ghost of Christmas future. And to kick things off with the ghost of Christmas past, I'm just going to say the style of puppet here, I don't know if there is a name for that, Brian, but that kind of swooshy underwater spectral with the little scary baby face, honestly, super creepy. It really freaks me out. Well, the technical term for that is a whooshy, scary underwater puppet with a scary baby face. Nailed it. Absolutely got it. Now, I did a little bit of research. I rang... (laughs) So I, rang, I spoke to several people who would be infinitely better guests than me because they were there. Now, I spoke to my very good friend, Rob Tigner, and Rob was one of the three puppet coordinators on that movie, puppeteer coordinators. There was Rob Tigner, there was Karen Prell, who was uh, better known as Red Fraggle, and uh, Mike Quinn, uh, better known as Nine Numb. No, Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, so um, I got speaking to Rob and I rang him up because I wanted to, I knew it was coming on this and I, I wanted to ask him if a story I'd heard was true, which it turned out to not be. But it right. was um, it was a combination of two stories. But he explained to me how the Ghost of Christmas past worked. And what it was, it was, it was in a tank that was about two metres by a metre. And it was initially full of some kind of oil clear oil not baby oil it was maybe some kind of cooking oil whatever and under the lights this thing was getting warmer and warmer and warmer now when they tested this the puppet itself was performed by rob karen and william todd jones and it was voiced i do know this is voiced by a lady called jessica fox and when they did the initial test they said to the uh, the fellow who had sculpted this puppet have you tested this in oil because there was a mechanism inside it. These things are usually, there's like usually a fiberglass skull. If the mouth moves, there's a mechanism that comes out the back of the head. And it had a foam latex skin. Have you tested this in oil? And he said, oh yeah, I'll put some oil on it. And so they submerged this puppet. And the reason it was in the oil is because the hair needed to move and the, the, the body and it had to look a little wafty. And they had trouble because under the lights, the oil, apparently it just heated up mm. and then ceased to be clear so that you couldn't see it went all cloudy and nasty right. and they had fans in it just to or they had something in there to agitate the oil so that the oil would move and the hair would go backwards to give it the impression that the in the robes so it was flying forwards except 
in the tank the oil would move and then of course it would come back on itself so all the hair would go over its face and apparently they could only ever shoot this thing 10 seconds at a time but on the initial test having said have you tried this in oil before he said oh yeah yeah I've done it I've done it so they put it in the oil and this foam latex started to take on oil and the head started to expand oh god that's even creepier (laughs) and the eyes started to get smaller and the whole thing bulged and Rob said it got got like to three or four times its size and it came away (laughs) it came away from the skull cap so the the inner skull and it kind of sort of burst in some rage of the lost ark at the end and like get it out of the water get it out of the water you know so they had to kind of go away and work out other ways of doing that but um, yeah it just the latex got so heavy the whole thing hung off the skull and it was all it was a kind of like massive great holes under the eyes and it was very horrific apparently that's a very ghost of christmas future vibe exactly ghost of christmas past. exactly yeah yeah they shot that as an element and then sort of put cane in with it afterwards and, and they did lots of green screen stuff or chroma key back then so they were keying the puppeteers out and that sort of thing I mean, the effect of it is is spot on. It, it really works visually. I just find that image itself so creepy. It really freaks me out. I think the Christmas past one, you, I mean, the Christmas present, you're supposed to feel the joy and the warmth of it. Christmas past, yeah, it's the ethereal vibe that they're going for, it, I think, with this one. And Sam, I guess this portion of the story, what stands out to you in the Muppet telling of Christmas Carol when it comes to the ghost of Christmas past? Yeah, again, okay, so love Sam the Eagle... Top tier Muppet, love the American way joke, we've covered that. But, I mean, this is where you get a lot of those characters in, right? You get the big party. There's not a lot of roles in Christmas Carol, like, where you can naturally fill them all out with the Muppets. So you've got, like, fairly small roles for Fozzy, but he does a good job. You get all of the band in that section. You get a very brief bit of Ralph. The Swedish chef doing a bit of, like, food business. So they get a lot of them in there. And this always... I can't remember if I mentioned this last time we did A Christmas Carol, but I was mid-period Scrooge in my primary school production of this because I was a huge, like, egomaniac in school. I always wanted to be the lead in all the plays, and I never got cast. And I eventually got a role in this because one child dropped out because they didn't want to say I love you to a girl. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> they didn't want to say I love you to Belle like, I'm not doing that I'm like here I am I'll do it any day of the week I'll say I love you to anything you've got <laughs> so uh, that's that's a, a lot of what I think about when I watch these sequences I would have got to sing The Love Is Gone if that had been in, in our version uh, yeah it's the least mem- oh no I don't want to say that I was going to say it's the least memorable of the three but it's it's very very close isn't it so yeah but it's a great series of events between the school and the party and the goodbye to Bell scene, they hit it out of the park every time, actually. I really like the um, the time-lapse sequence they do in the school, I mean, when the nose falls off of Shakespeare and then the, then the whole uh, the shelf goes. But then to mm. see Scrooge getting older with that kind of locked-off camera, you know, each version of him sits there for a couple of seconds as it fades to the next one. And uh, I, I think that's a really a beautiful piece of very simple storytelling, and I, I really like that just how he just stayed there every Christmas didn't do Christmas and he's just a sad little man you know he's a sad little boy um, and you kind of see how he became who he became you also get speaking of transitions one of the best like pure Gonzo the Great moments in this movie which is where he latches a grappling hook yes. to the ghost of Christmas past <laughs> and flies over the streets of London and that's just proper gonzo like Mm. even though he's mellowed out a bit by this point you've got to still have a bit where he's performing some kind of insane stunt screaming his head off as 
Rizzo is just like <laughs> really, really not having it. And that dynamic between those two is excellent, isn't it? Mm. The Rizzo Gonzo double act. Lovely double act. Really, really lovely. And I'm not sure how much that double act had existed before that film. I'm sure anybody, you know, if any real Muppet sort of aficionados listen to this, would go, oh, they did that in episode 82 of whatever. But um, I wasn't really aware of Rizzo and Gonzo, I suppose, being big pals like that. Yeah, I think this is the one. Yeah. And there's a bit, since we're talking about the Christmas past and we mentioned the song When Love Has Gone, the end of that song, where Michael Caine is just sort of singing along whilst silently crying and then Rizzo bawling his eyes out at the end with Gonzo with his arm round him he just goes oh Rizzo and he just gives him a tiny little cuddle and it's just it's so sweet yeah just a real little moment of tenderness and also feels like a little missive to the audience and maybe kids in the audience Mm. of like it's okay if this makes you cry because yeah the Muppets are crying too it's okay to cry and just come in and have a little cuddle for me I think as you've already teed up Sam in terms of classic Muppet moments, the brilliant slash terrible pun of Mr. Fezziwig and Fozzy being Fozziwig is just absolutely brilliant. It's like such a no-brainer that they had to do that. They had to go there. Wacka wacka, everybody deserves a raise. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a wig on as well. Double pun. There you go. It gets even better. And it's Fozziwig's old rubber chicken factory, isn't it? Fozziwig and Mum's oh, old rubber chicken factory. And another perfect Gonzo moment. Soon as they get in there, it's like a big barn. Chicken walks past. Gonzo <laughs> takes one look. He's like, wow. Yeah. Gonzo, he's like an icon of pop culture, an icon of children's entertainment, right? He's already this little like weird dude, this real oddbod who's kind of upsetting to look at in a lot of ways if you really break it down. So... He's already got a few things that make him a little bit like inappropriate. He's always advocating dangerous activities. But like the fact that this icon of children's entertainment, it's a core part of his character, comes up in every single piece of media that he's included in, that he's really, really mad for chickens. Mm. <laughs> I'm trying to think of the Disneyversity appropriate way to describe it. I think yeah, I think you've covered it. He's got a thing with a capital T for chickens, this guy. <laughs> or other kinds of birds as well on occasion, but mainly chickens. And it's in the Mubber Christmas Carol. It's one little noise that he makes that's like, oh, this guy's got a thing for chickens still. He's the opposite of Donald Duck in Saludos Amigos. Same problem, just the opposite way around. <laughs> oh, right. So that's a, a bit of poultry who fancies human women. And yeah. this is a humanoid creature who fancies chickens. Oh, yeah, that's true. They'd get on well. They would. They'd be best mates. So that is The Ghost of Christmas Past with its scary baby face and its visions of Scrooge's childhood and his early adult life. Then we get to The Ghost of Christmas Present, who is just an absolutely wonderful creation. As I mentioned before, he is the embodiment of joy and warmth. He's a huge, huge guy. He's almost like if Hagrid was a Muppet. He fills the room literally. Is he based on any kind of classic Muppet character because he's got a bit of who's the guy the big hairy chewy guy Sweetums Sweetums he's got a bit of a Sweetums vibe but he's more humanoid than that really yeah I mean he's very much based on the kind of the traditional pre-Coca-Cola version of sort of Father Christmas as we would know I don't know what the original name for him would have been back then 
he was very, very, very much in that kind of mould of those big bodysuits that the Muppet Show used to have on. And they had such a big tradition of bodysuits, I mean, between Big Bird and, and Sweetums and other things like that, you know, just Snuffleupagus and big characters. Um, he oh, was played, um, the physical actor inside was, was Donald Austin, who is a great puppeteer still at it. People might know his work from, I did work with him on the hoops. He was also one of the leprechauns on Live and Kicking through the 90s and one of the wolves on What's Up Doc if you remember those things Don was, was one of those performers and uh, the voice performance was uh, Jerry Nelson and uh, Rob Tigner who I mentioned earlier was also on the eyes for that and if you know Don you look at the physicality of it and that is just Don in a head he's a big old presence and just was, was fabulous I'm not sure how much he could see in there he may very well have had a monitor on his chest which a lot of the time that happens and with those kind of characters you need to give them the space they need because they can't necessarily see you so there's every chance that if the arms go out and you're stood right next to it you're getting smashed in the face I'm not saying Don <laughs> did that but it wouldn't surprise me if that's the kind of thing that does happen uh, with those things and it's, it's just it's such a lovely performance and again a great vocal performance by Jerry Nelson such a jump away from playing Robin these guys were so so brilliant yeah, a full-body Muppet is really a special type of thing, because it's a Muppet that you can really get stuck in with a hug. Mm. I had cause to think about this recently, because um, they put Bear in the Big Blue House on Disney+, Plus, mm. which is like a childhood favourite of mine. Amazing. Holy moly, that bear, man. That bear, I could cuddle that bear. I want to get all up in that bear. Oh, he's just the way he shakes his head around. He does this little dance where he shakes his head around in the air, points his nose up. Great bear. Obviously, your man Muppet Top. Classic, yep. Yep. giant, full-body Muppet. Yep. But that's what I was thinking, like, what's the best ever full-body Muppet? I guess a lot of people would say Big Bird. Yeah, I, I'd have to go with Big Bird because it's so yeah. clever. Because so, so many people don't realise how it's done as well. You know, it's, it was initially, it was Carol Spinney, and I can't remember who does it now. Peter Lintz, I think, maybe. Again, there'll be letters. Because he's only got one working arm. Yeah. And the other arm is worked from a piece of monofilament that goes up through a ring under some feathers. So when, wow. he, when he takes his live arm down, the real arm goes up. If you do see it using both arms, it's probably because he's sitting down, there's somebody crammed around the back doing the other arm. And he's just got his, he's just got his arm above his head, and he's he's uh, right. you know he's doing the beak and, and operating the eyes, and it's it's so simple when you when you realise how it's done, you can see it. But if you never think about it, it's just so beautifully. The Moppetop was the same, and Bear is the same as well. Um, it's just yeah, just just lovely, lovely stuff. It's one of those classic adult watching children's media moments where it's like, oh right. Big Bird's arm doesn't move. You start to notice it. Like, oh, damn, Big Bird's arm. How did I not notice that when I was a kid? I could swear he's gesticulating mm. fully all the time. And then he's got one little arm kind of stuck to his stomach at all times. But you don't notice because you're not focusing on it. it. There are times where it goes up and down because it's this arm is connected to this arm. Right. So when he takes it down, the other one goes up. So when he walks, it, it tick-tocks. Right. And that's, it's again, the guys who made them designed those puppets. How can we make that work if we've only got one person in it? And yeah, very, very smart people. Amazing. I mean, this whole section of the story as well, I think is the most fun part of the story. This is the part where Scrooge is seeing what other people do on Christmas Day, the fun that other people have. And even though there is hardships, even though the Cratchits don't have the biggest turkey in the shop by any means, they're together and they're warm and they're happy and... I think this is also the the segment as well, obviously, with the party that Scrooge sees that he's missing out on and he's kind of being dunked on. They're basically playing the name on the head game, classic Christmas game, which always comes out around our house. 
and it's i think seeing the warmth of christmas day you kind of need it at this point in the story well done dickens if we're critiquing dickens well done we needed a bit of joy and warmth at this stage in the story and it gets it right in the right place clara who was fred's wife girlfriend is played by actress robin weaver who i did a tv show with years ago but she plays joe's mum in the in-betweeners no uh, yeah so she went on to play joe's mum but also victoria willing who plays jay's mum in the in-betweeners, was a puppeteer on, on Muppet's Christmas Carol. Wow, so so, so many of the in-betweeners cast comes back yeah, to the Yeah, so, so two of the mothers in the in-betweeners were, were on over on Muppet's Christmas Carol. I just thought that was a very silly fact. <laughs> <laughs> we love silly facts here. If we're thinking about things that just spark pure joy in this movie, there's nothing quite like Kermit dancing down the street with Robin singing that song. And it is, it's like what we're talking about with the, the Muppet movie and the Great Muppet Caper bicycle sequences. It's like it always feels like a special treat when you get to see Kermit's legs. Mm. Partly because it's just really cool to see these little like frog legs dancing around. I've got a thing for frogs, as we've mentioned. <laughs> Not in the way that Gonzo has a thing for chickens. Important distinction. But uh, it's, it's also like you always know, again, I guess as an adult, that, oh, they had to work really hard for this. Like They had to really figure out how to do this. It's a very clever little thing, actually, because the, if you look at it, you can see, once you know what you're looking at, you can see that the pavement is on a roller. So the pavement is rolling under the puppet and they're behind it and they're removed. They've been, I'd probably chroma key at them, that point. But there's somebody on the feet and the pavement is a cylinder that the pavement is always moving under the frog and the frog isn't actually coming forwards. It's just a beautiful illusion. That's amazing. And so finally, the final visitation in the story is the Ghost of Christmas Future, who, as much as I said the Ghost of Christmas Past scares me with its little weird baby face, the Christmas Future ghost is terrifying. It's almost Dementor-like, the kind of hooded figure that we have here, and the pointing and the silence, it's so ominous. And as a way of kind of tying the story up as well, in terms of just pointing out to Scrooge, this is what's going to happen to you. And also, this is what's going to happen to Tiny Tim. This is the point that it's all been leading towards. It, it really hits you, even in the Muppet version. Yeah, it's a horrifying, terrifying, spooky, spooky thing as a kid. I refused to watch this movie when I was a kid. That's why I was more of a Treasure Island guy, because in the trailer, you get both... The Ghost of Christmas Future, and something that really freaked me out when the doorknob turns into Jacob Marley. That is some nasty business to put in a trailer. Like, you are scaring kids off. You are not bringing them to the party with that. But yeah, up there with that awful moment is the Ghost of Christmas Future. And it's because I guess he is technically a Muppet. I guess he's technically like a full-body Muppet. I don't know. I don't know exactly what qualifies him as a Muppet, but just that big hole that bottomless void that he has for a head is is really unsettled well again that had a couple of different performers on it as well rob tigner who i mentioned earlier on and i think don who was in um christmas present was also involved in that and uh, rob told me that they had these big long hand extensions which were quite heavy so every time you had to hold out to point they were taking the whole weight of that on one arm so they, they couldn't point for long and it, the whole thing was on a panavision track was because it didn't walk as a normal kind of character like that would it was on a panavision track and it kept falling off but um there's the point where scrooge is hit by the fog that rolls in this is amazing fog and of course that's a practical effect because this was before it's all pre-digital you know in the great scheme yeah. of things so the way that they did this rob told me was they they would get the smoke machines going and they'd have these big heavy heavy curtains and so they'd fill half the stage up with smoke and then they'd just open the curtains and the whole thing would roll across the set but they completely overdid it the first time they did it and it came out like something from a John Carpenter film 
and it just filled the whole set and nobody could see their hand in front of their face there was so much and they just heard and everybody just kind of went deadly quiet and so the, the, the first assistant just went nobody move can anybody find a door <laughs> <laughs> just to open the doors just to let the stuff out because they honestly couldn't see a thing but it's like, nobody move can anyone find a door um, there's probably more swearing involved than that but yeah, it's a Disney podcast and as far as treacherous sets for that to happen on when there's presumably boxes for actors to stand on and mm. holes in the floor for puppeteers to be underneath yeah that is, yeah <laughs> that is a dangerous exactly place. yeah when Rob was relating these stories to me he was absolutely laughing his head off because he I don't think he'd spoken about that film since yeah. you know for a few years and he, so it was all starting to come back to him which was quite funny it's very funny amazing well before we wrap up our discussion of the film itself we have to just dedicate a few minutes specifically to the songs because as we've been teeing up all the way along the songs in this movie are unbelievable they they zap me right to the heart they're so beautifully written the melodies are incredible there's certain lyrics in here that are just some of my favorite combinations of words of all time like if you're talking about what christmas really means what christmas feels like in all the places you find love it feels like christmas just that Mm. idea that the pure feeling of christmas of the warmth of christmas is the same as the feeling of love where you find that that is the feeling of christmas i love that also it's the summer of the soul in december is just like absolute chef's kiss really when you break that down of just the feeling of summer the joy and the openness of summer the summer of the soul that's feeding your soul in december i love that so so much i think a lot again of the emotional power of this film is the songs because especially towards the end of the film even the joyous songs the ones that are kind of getting across that sense of the wholesomeness and the love of christmas that is what gets me as much as any of the sad tiny tim stuff and i think you really feel that in thankful hearts and when love is found which obviously part of the reason people have wanted when love is gone back in the film is because it sets up the finale of the movie which is scrooge coming around and singing when love is found what are your guys favorite songs here because i could talk about all of them all day well, I, I mentioned my, my favourite lyric earlier, which is in the, in the Scrooge song about, you know, if he became a flavour, you could bet he would be sour. And it's just, because it's just so daft and so brilliant. But again, you, I think you've just cut, you've pretty much covered everything I really love about those songs. And so they're, they're so evocative of the season. I have a small piece of trivia for the last number, though. The, um, right. the Thankful Heart is sung outside Micklewhite's store. So, oh, as in Michael Caine. So Michael Caine's real name is Maurice Micklewhite. And so Micklewhite's store is right behind him during that. I only caught that the other night when I watched it again for this. Yeah. Uh, it helps that he was born with the name of a Charles Dickens character built in, <laughs> right? <laughs> Morris Micklewhite. That's how they had the set. That's how he got the part. But, but yeah, the songs are just, just as again, Paul Williams, just fabulous. Yeah, I mean, I don't know loads about Paul Williams' personal life. It's obvious why they got him for this. He's like a great songwriter. He'd worked with the Muppets a lot in the past, wrote the songs for that first Muppet movie, which also has just a perfect soundtrack. It feels on the basis of this like he might love Christmas more than anyone on Earth. <laughs> I've got no idea if that's true, but it's just like he has so much to say and so many different inventive ways to say it about how great Christmas is. And it goes far beyond... None of it's really religious and certainly none of it's consumerist, you know, and these are the two like big pillars of what Christmas is really. It's that third one, it's love and family and togetherness, which is core to what he's writing about in these songs and he just does it so, so well, yeah. I think for me as well, it's the combination of the songs 
and the images that go with it right because if we're talking very briefly about the muppet movie the end of the muppet movie where all the muppets are together and they're singing and you get that moment where the artifice is broken you zoom out and they're in the studio and they're all together and something about that is just beautiful and emotionally shattering i think there's also something at the end of muppet christmas carol obviously they're singing about togetherness and the meaning of christmas and the love of christmas but seeing all those characters together and scrooge in the middle of it and the way they're all kind of bobbing down the street together there's something about that as an image as well that just gets me every single time that was always an ethos of the Muppets is they always had each other's backs. And although sometimes they would be, they would kind of rib each other, they, would, they were never nasty. And there was always love there and they were, they were always a family. You're sort of talking about the Muppet movie just then and the breaking of the, the, of the fourth wall at the end. They were always putting on a show and they were even putting on a show in Christmas Carol because Gonzo was telling the story and they were kind of putting on that story. Um, so they, they were always a group of friends uh, I think that's always their real ethos and, and, and that was, I think, very much Jim Henson's sort of philosophy. Now, as with our A Goofy Movie episode, we're not going to do Discarded here. We might have done that on the Mickey's Christmas Carol episode, but no Discarded this week. We're going to head straight into the review section. Sam, please tell me that the critics at the time loved this film as much as we do. Surely they had to. Yeah, not particularly it was it had a very lukewarm reception pretty much like average to low reviews across the board average to low scores chicago tribune just the idea of a muppet version of a christmas carol suggests that a severe drought of inspiration has struck henson associates and the movie does nothing to dispel that impression and the thing that people are going in on the most is the songs People really didn't like the songs. Yeah, Variety said they are pedestrian and repetitious. A lot of people didn't like the lyrics and and the way that Williams would rhyme things. They didn't like... There's that line very early on, it paints you with indifference like a lady paints with rouge. And it's like, ah, he's just put rouge in there to rhyme with Scrooge. It's like, yeah, and it's funny and it's great. Yeah, people didn't like the songs. People didn't love the movie. I never trust reviews. Anytime there's a new musical movie that comes out and people go, oh, and the songs aren't very memorable. It's like, you've seen the film, you've heard the songs once. If you remember the songs afterwards after seeing it once, that's incredible. If you give that CD or that soundtrack a couple of spins, you're going to be singing those songs. If I'm ever reviewing anything that's a musical, I try and avoid the trap of saying the songs are crap because then (laughs) two weeks later, you're going to be like, oh, I got that so wrong. These are stuck in my head now. I can't believe people didn't like it in the sense that now it's kind of the Christmas classic of our generation, I think. Yeah, um, and, and you know, it'll have done so well in home video sales and DVD sales. I mean, that's what a Christmas movie gets you, that people are always going to be coming back to it. You can always do, like, rep performances, live orchestral showings and things like that. But yeah, it didn't make a ton of money either. It was a 12 million budget, made 27 million domestically. So not a disaster, but below expectations. It didn't help that Aladdin came out just a month prior, sort of foreshadowing our next episode. That was... A little bit of a hit, so that was still beating Muppets in Muppets' opening weekend. Aladdin was still way ahead of it in the charts, so Disney kind of cannibalised their own profits with that. But it is, it's one of those things, people watch it every year, like so many Christmas movies. Allegedly, the Polar Express is beloved now. Like, every time I talk about the Polar Express with my students, they're like, oh yeah, no, we like that movie, Gen Z likes the Polar Express. It's like, 
alright, okay, but it's because you watch it every year because it's a Christmas movie. I mean, if we're talking about our ratings, for me, this is honestly an easy five star because it just hits me mm. in a place that no other films do. Uh, Sam, would you go a five on this or are you a little bit tempered down on that? I think I would go five, but it's it's not my favourite Muppet. Like, my favourite Muppets movie will always be the Muppet movie. So I don't know if relatively that makes this a four and a half, but like they're both very good. I think this is like a perfect marriage of material and the Muppets in a way that it might not initially seem because the reason why it works so well is because it's got all that Charles Dickens narration in. That's why it's a great adaptation of A Christmas Carol. But you can only do that with the Muppets, otherwise it's dull. If it's like just a live-action, regular movie with a narrator doing all the Dickens dialogue over the top, that's terrible. But because it's the Muppets, and when you are watching a Muppet movie, you are always watching the movie and also the Muppets making the movie, it makes perfect sense and you don't question it that Gonzo is just walking through every scene delivering this narration it fits so well so yeah great perfect five-star movie brian do you feel in a place to give this a rating are you too much in uh, <laughs> the artistic side of this absolutely can uh, it, it is i mean it's muppets in bonnets so it doesn't get any funnier than that it's just <laughs> you know it's muppets in period costumes it's fantastic it is my i think i think it's a five-star because it's it stood the test of time i would love it if you would to give those journalists those reviews to read back to themselves now. I'm pretty sure they've been visited by three ghosts yeah, exactly. every Christmas ever since then. Totally. I mean, it is my second favourite Muppet movie, and it's my second favourite Christmas movie. Yeah. What's your number one? Oh, Die Hard, obviously. <laughs> amazing, amazing. What about Muppet Die Hard? Got to pitch that at some point. Well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but how, you're going to have to cast that one day. You can do that on your Twitter. That won't spark much debate. <laughs> But that brings us to Lasting Legacy, the final section of the show, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. In the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe for each character. Now Sam, we already briefly talked about Muppet Vision 3D, which is still in Walt Disney World. We've also mentioned Muppet Treasure Island, which comes off the back of The Muppet Christmas Carol. So, uh, is there anything else lasting legacy-wise for this movie? Yeah, I guess Muppet Treasure Island is its most direct successor. That's its most direct bit of, of lasting legacy. That and the Twitter question, the perennial Twitter question, if you could recast any movie with all the Muppets but keep one human, what would it be? It's like, yeah, they only did that, like, once or twice. Like, in Treasure Island, there's two main humans, but for some reason, that's what people think a Muppet movie is mm. now and, and talk about it constantly on Twitter. In terms of like direct bits of Last and Legacy that are specifically about this movie and not just Muppets in general, one of the only ones I could find was a video game that I loved when I was a kid for the PlayStation called Muppets Race Mania, where you race through. <laughs> I'm getting a bit. Oh, I love that game. Loved it. Yeah. yeah. It was Mario Kart with Muppets, wasn't it? Exactly. But it's much faster than Mario yeah. Kart and it's much harder to control. And I think that's <laughs> deliberate because it's just Muppet chaos. Yeah, yeah. It's very hard to drive in a straight line. All old, all old PlayStation games are a nightmare to play. I tried to play one recently. I thought I was going to get motion sickness. It was just horrific. So in Muppet Race Mania, you specifically race through courses based on the movies. I think there's like three or four courses for every film. And in Muppet's Christmas Carol, one of them is the graveyard, which I love. Yes. Like you're racing through the graveyard where Scrooge finds out that he's fated to die. <laughs> like you just imagine a little like PS1 CGI Scrooge like mm. breaking down in tears as Pepe the Prawn drives past <laughs> in a monster truck and throws a penguin at Gonzo. 
fantastic. And there's also a boss fight in that game against Marley and Marley in Scrooge's house, which is the hardest level on the game because there's two of them. It's a two-on-one <laughs> battle. Very, very difficult. And I did just want to plug another really weird, the short-lived tradition of Muppet versions of classic Christmas stories. So, Ben, at the start, you said that this was the Muppetiest Christmas movie, but in fact, the Muppetiest Christmas movie is It's a Very Merry Muppet Christmas Movie, which is just slightly higher on Muppet content than this, and it's a loose adaptation of It's a Wonderful Life, in which Kermit visits a world where he was never born. And it features probably the most disturbing and upsetting scene in the history of the Muppets, much worse than anything in this movie, where... In the world where Kermit was never born, the Muppet Theatre is being bought by Joan Cusack's Mr. Potter analogue and turned into a nightclub where a very beefy beaker works as a bouncer and a scantily clad scooter dances in a cage. Oh, that's bleak. I don't want to see it, Sam. Don't make me see it. (laughs) It's really, really upsetting. But they also put on a big show at the Muppet Theatre called Moulin Scrooge, Aww. which is a Christmas-themed parody of Moulin Rouge. That's the Muppet version I want to see, full-length Moulin Rouge. That is incredible. Well, on your Christmas list is Muppet Moulin Rouge. On mine is for us all to play whatever the Muppet Mario Kart game is and race around... Muppet Race Mania. ...go and race around Scrooge's grave. Yeah, that's on my Christmas list, right at the top. And that is it for this week's class. Brian, have you enjoyed joining us at Disneyversity? Like, I can't thank you enough for joining us, especially for this episode. I've had a while of a time. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a blast. Where can people find you online if they're looking for more Brian Herring in their life, which they all should be after this? Well, if, you, if that's what you need in your life, uh, well, then you can find me as uh, Brian Herring on Facebook. I'm, on, I'm at Brian Hezer on Twitter and Instagram and the other two, Mastodon and um, what's the other one? Hive. Yes, I've sort of, <laughs> got all that going on. Uh, I mostly use Twitter currently. And have you got any exciting uh, projects coming up? Can we see your puppetry and anything that you're allowed to say yet? Uh, I'm allowed to say that I am involved in one way or another in the next episode of Doctor Who that airs. Wow. Okay. That's amazing. Yeah, that's exciting. It was actually. It was a huge amount of fun. Yeah. yeah. I hadn't I hadn't had that much fun in a long time and it was uh yeah, it was great and they're very very good scripts. Ooh, I cannot wait. I have been waiting for this next lot of Doctor Who with David Tennant coming back. I've been waiting for this for a long time. We're going to have to catch up after that has aired <laughs> and uh, find out what your involvement was. But yeah, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an thank absolute you, blast and to have you talking Muppets with us is yeah, incredible. Thank you. And listeners, join us again for our next seminar as we actually finally do get back into the regular Disney timeline with Aladdin. It's coming, we promise. That's going to be the first episode that you hear in 2023. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, wherever you listen to us, please subscribe. And if you fancy dropping us a little review or a star rating, we'll arrange for you to come and join me and Sam and the Ghost of Christmas present for a right old knees up. For now, though, it's goodbye from Sam. Goodbye. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. It's goodbye from Brian. Merry Christmas, everybody. And it's goodbye from me. Merry Christmas, everyone. Have a very merry Muppet Christmas, but not with a buff beaker in a strip club or whatever that was. Have wholesome, lovely Christmas holidays, breaks, whatever you're doing, and we'll see you in the new year. Bye. 
Disney Versity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Thank you.